The corporate-owned media has been consumed with wall-to-wall coverage of the death of the Queen fawning over the British monarchy. But the lifestyle that's being celebrated is one based on plunder and empire. While her quote-unquote subjects lived in poverty, the Queen lived a life of total luxury, all because she was lucky enough to be born into the right family. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we discuss the biggest stories relating to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm Walter Smolarek, filling in for Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. So Professor Wolf, I mean, it's the story you can't escape this past week or so. The death of the queen, all of the coverage is completely just fawning and favorable, you know, about what a wonderful humanitarian she was. But I mean, really, when you look at just, I mean, I guess the concept of a monarchy, but especially this extremely opulent, exploitative one. I mean, this is really a story about inequality, about colonialism. They're really missing the mark, aren't they? Well, I think yes and no would be my answer. What's really interesting is if you think about when Elizabeth became the queen many, many years ago, the United Kingdom Sure, it wasn't the uh, British Empire of the 19th century about whom it was said the sun never sets on the British Empire because 24 hours of every day, there's at least one part of the empire where the sun is shining. She was not that, but there was still the claim that Britain could make that it was a major powerful force in the global economic and political landscape. And by the end, her death now, that's not even true anymore. It's not only that the British Empire is gone, but that the role of Britain in the world is not unfairly represented by the clownish, boorish Johnson or by the apparently even bigger clown we have now in the new leader. It's a sad story of decline, as it has been for the last two centuries. Let's remember, we here in the United States were a small, unimportant corner of the vast British Empire. And we eventually grew out of that position had to fight two wars with the British Empire, the Revolutionary War in which the U.S. got its independence, 
then an effort by Britain to undo having lost the Revolutionary War by having another war with the United States in 1812. Even in the Civil War here in the United States, the British openly debated whether or not to join the South rather than the North. And it was basically their need to control the South through the North for the cotton that they relied on that made their decision. So what did we see as the result of all of that? That the roles have been reversed from a poor secondary corner of the British Empire. The United States has become or did become the new empire, and Britain reverted to being a small, relatively inconsequential ally, to be polite. That's a very painful position to have lost over these last two centuries. And the British people had to go through, rich ones, poor ones, employers, employees, they had to go through a decline that is very severe, very hard to stomach, very difficult to accept given what they thought of themselves as the rulers of the world. You know, you can understand it because it's exactly what the United States is facing now as its empire undergoes the downside, having completed the upside. And so here's why I say yes and no. Having a queen, having all of that ceremony, having all of that pomp, spending all of that money on maintaining the delusion of a court, of a monarchy, of kings and queens, and all of that, you know what that is? That's a symbolic holding on to what in reality has disappeared. So that to those of us outside, it looks kind of bizarre. But to those caught up in it, it's a way of holding on to the little bit of fantasy that's left to imagine yourself the center of the world, which this whole fawning celebration and yeah, of course, it focuses on her, Elizabeth, as an individual with her interests, with her personal qualities, because you can't focus on what she was presiding over because it's been in a 200-year decline punctuated only by an awful lot of acts for which they ought to be ashamed for which other countries have apologized, the British not yet, for doing the things that they did around the world to construct their empire and to bitterly give it up bit by bit. Let me only remind you that this is the people who, in a tiny island off of Europe, had the nerve to claim they ruled India, a country vastly larger in every dimension, who fought bitter, murderous wars repeatedly in just India, killing untold numbers of people, both in military engagements and by their suffering, including starvations and famines that punctuated the British Empire in that one country alone. And I could repeat other examples. 
You don't want to remember that. What you want to remember is a kindly old lady who dressed appropriately and did all the things super rich people can do, including hiding some of her wealth in those offshore accounts in the Caribbean. Yeah, I think I understand why this is so popular in Britain. It's a little harder, honestly, for me to understand why those of us outside should be regaled with something like that that may make sense to the people directly involved, but not to the rest of us. Yeah, thanks, Professor Wolf. I mean, those are very interesting points about history. I mean, just to keep going in that direction, I mean, a monarchy in general, you know, having a society ruled by a king or a queen or by lords or dukes, that's generally considered to be by socialists, by Marxists, to be a stage in history prior to capitalism. That capitalism comes out of the conflicts in feudal society, you know, societies ruled by large landowners, you know, hereditary landowners, and that it essentially replaces that political regime. When capitalism comes to power, the feudal regime, the monarchical regime is overthrown and replaced by, you know, generally a republic. You know, the revolution in France is kind of the classical example of that in 1789. Right. But the British monarchy, I mean, Britain certainly is a capitalist country, right? I mean, it's one of the wealthiest capitalist countries in the world. For sure. But the British monarchy did not go the way of the French monarchy. You know, they were not beheaded. They weren't guillotined, right? They retained this privileged status. Now, some of them, I mean, actually all of them are personally themselves capitalists now in sectors like real estate. And, you know, I want to bring that up a little bit more later. But I mean, just politically, historically speaking, how did the British monarchy pull that off? I mean, how are they still in charge in 2022? Not that they, you know, are exercising control over the day-to-day operations of the British government, but they obviously retained this completely privileged status in British society. Well, the way they did that, and that happens in other countries, there are other monarchies that survived. Belgium has one. The Spanish keep flirting with their old monarchy, and then there are a few others. But you're quite right to ask, how did they manage it? And the honest, although a bit brutal answer, is that they gave up 99% of what it ever meant to be a king. In other words, the end of feudalism, the end of the period of lords and serfs where the biggest lord got to call himself the king, that's all gone. The capitalism that replaced feudalism basically said to all the kings and queens, including the British, you either accept to become a theatrical sideshow to what we are and what we do, or you disappear. That's your choice. Many of the kings and queens caught up in the majesty they thought they still had, decided to fight, and they're gone, and we don't see them anymore. You know, the American Revolution was waged against a king. George III, sitting in Britain, was the ruler of what were the American colonies. When we made a revolution, we might have, as a nation, said, the same thing. If you want to become a figurehead, you know, the way the king remained in some vague way in charge of Canada or Australia or New Zealand, we'll let you be 
a figurehead. But if you want anything more than that, if you actually want to be anything that the word king used to mean, you're out of here, George. Well, George didn't want to give those things up. And that's why we don't have a king in this country. We didn't win the Revolutionary War and declare George Washington to be our king instead of George III in Britain. We said no more kings. We weren't going to allow them. They weren't willing to be figureheads. They weren't willing to be window dressing. The British monarchs tried to hold on. They couldn't in the United States. And in the end, they couldn't in their own country either. They were displaced. If you follow the actuality of what goes on in Britain for the last many, 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 many decades, the queen or the king, whoever's in charge, is purely there for the television show, for the radio speech. They're there to play their role in the theater of government. Actual government long ago went into the House of Commons and the House of Lords, and those are places where capitalism is 110% in charge. It funds the political parties, it funds the candidates, it funds the institutions that educate and train those people. The leaders in Britain all went to Cambridge or Oxford universities, to Eton and the other specialized schools for the private rich. I mean, it's like in the United States. It is no different at all, except where we have the Washington Monument and events around Lincoln and Washington, they have a queen and they do their little hoopty doodles about that. They only do it with more desperation. And that's that kind of overwhelmingness that you described at the beginning of our conversation. They do that because they don't really have anything else. That's all they have left of the old British Empire. Nothing else is left. And they don't want to give that last little bit up. So they hype it and hold on to it. And the rest of the world looks at them wondering about how odd it is to do that. But if you think about their history, it's not quite so odd. And, you know, as the British monarchy settled into this new position, right, of, of being essentially political figureheads, they, they retained a vast amount of wealth. Yes. They got to live in, in total opulence. And, you know, since capitalism was going to be the dominant mode of production, the type of economy in the UK, they figured they might as well become capitalists themselves. They might as well take some of that vast wealth invested and through the exploitation of workers or just through pure speculation, try to get a return on that investment. I want to read a little bit from a recent article in the New York Times. It's titled King Charles, so that's Queen Elizabeth's son. King Charles inherits untold riches and passes off his own empire. King Charles III built his own empire long before he inherited his mother's Charles, who formerly acceded to the British throne, spent half a century turning his royal estate into a billion-dollar portfolio and one of the most lucrative moneymakers in the royal family business. Uh, Charles was deeply involved in developing the private estate known as the Duchy of Cornwall. Over the past decades, he has assembled a large team of professional managers who increased his portfolio's values and profits by about 50%. It owns the Oval, which is a famous cricket ground, 
lush farmland in the south of England, seaside vacation rentals, office space in London, and a suburban supermarket depot, the 130,000-acre real estate portfolio is nearly the size of Chicago and generates millions of dollars a year in rental income. And now this is just King Charles, right? Now that's very, very significant, right? That's a huge, huge amount of money, a huge, huge amount of real estate holdings. But take it all together, the royal family, Forbes estimates, I mean, this is a subjective debate, but Forbes estimates that the royal family controls $28 billion, $28 billion. And one of the reasons why it's so hard to tell how much money they actually have is because in the 1970s, when the UK was passing a financial transparency law, the Queen Elizabeth, you know, now past Queen Elizabeth, lobbied for essentially an exemption for heads of state, which was her, so that they would not be, the royal family would not be forced to disclose exactly how much money they have, what assets they have, etc. So this is actually, I mean, in a way, worked out very, very well for them because they got to, you know, continue to wear a crown, wear robes, call themselves monarchs, and they're fabulously wealthy capitalists. Yeah, they've played the capitalist system. Look, that's part of the deal that was made. You know, you become a figurehead and we let you be the king and the queen. And I'm sure they knew, and if they didn't, they should have, that this is like having your own money printing press. If you're the queen or the king, or if you're the son or the daughter of the king or the queen. Every capitalist in Britain wants to associate his or her business with the royal family. It's just good advertising. And so if you're money grubber, which most of them have been, well, you sell your royalty. You endorse products, you show up, you enter into, how shall I put it politely, dealings in which a proposed project that goes before parliament is not just proposed by the Jones and company capitalists, but in conjunction with, as part of a program with, as conjointly worked out with the royal family, one member or more than one member. And all of that is paid for. There are fees for that. There are fees paid. If you sit on the board of something and on and on and on, the royal family has been using its royalty to make money for itself for a long time. You might wonder why the British would allow an exemption from being transparent to an institution that the taxes of the British people help to sustain. The royalty gets money from the budget of that country all the time and always has. So you're giving them all this special opportunity and they use it in whatever way they feel like. Let's remember Prince Andrew, who did very unsavory things here with Mr. Epstein that we all know about. That's another part of the royal family, bit of an embarrassment, mostly because he got caught. Who knows what else they have all done? But they have all entered into the capitalist system. They basically sold the monarchy to that system. They accepted the notion that they have no real power other than to parlay their royal family connection within and subject to the rules of the capitalist system. And I'm sure the worry that they have, that the activities of the British economy these days in unspeakably 
bad shape. The amount of money spent on this funeral and the coronation to come and all the rest of it is money the British can't afford. They talk to each other in public about freezing this winter because of the costs of energy that they can't pay, having to do with the sanctions against Russia around Ukraine and so on. They have many more urgent things to do for their people. They're suffering an inflation these days in the 10 to 11 percent range. That's decimating an already wobbling working class, having gone through the pandemic, having gone through the crash. Now to have an inflation on top of it at the rates that they're having, I mean, it is, it's amazing to see this kind of money hidden, spent, for theatrical hoopla about an institution that if it disappeared tomorrow would make very little difference to anything going on in England except its fantasy life. You know, you'd wonder that they'd be a little more careful, a little more cautious. And you know, they have been, they did go through the theatrics of disengaging from Prince Andrew after he got caught with Epstein. But nonetheless, we do all know from the gossip columns that the royals enjoy, or at least some of them do, the publicity of being caught, being naughty on some expensive island in the Caribbean or the Mediterranean, etc., etc. I mean, I'm trying to be nice and understand the positive fantasy role that they play for people suffering the end of their empire. But it would be very easy to make a list of the things that they do that are not pretty and that don't speak well for the continuation of a kind of superfluous institution like this. Professor Wolf, just one last question before we wrap up. Along those lines, because of a lot of that hardship, deprivation, rising prices in the UK, there's a historic strike wave going on. I mean, it's quite an ironic contrast between, you know, this elaborate and very extensive, you know, multi-week ceremony to, you know, say farewell to the queen. At the same time as more workers are on strike in the UK since, you know, I believe the 1970s or the 1980s. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with the British labor movement right now. I mean, it's such a clear counterpoint, I think, to what we've been talking about. Yes, and in more ways than one. The railway workers, who have been a very important part of the labor movement for as long as there have been railways in Britain, and it was one of the leaders in building railways back in the 19th century and so on. Railway workers were on strike. My understanding is that they, in honor of the Queen, believe it or not, suspended, I believe for a few days, their strike. The mail carrier, postal system in England, they're on strike. Many, many other unions who haven't struck in many cases for years are now talking about striking because the treatment of the working class in Britain, and by the way, it's not that different from how the treatment of the working class in the United States has gone, has been atrocious. And I'd like to point out The railway workers suspended a strike to honor the queen. The last time the railway workers were on strike, or the last time that I know of anyone in England going on strike, I never noticed Queen Elizabeth or any other member of the royal family proposing to suspend royal activities in respect of the needs of the working people. The asymmetry 
That's another part of monarchy that has survived in England. The monarch is free to do pretty much what he or she wants other than interfere with capitalism. But the people feel a kind of deference that is not returned by the king or the queen. Oh, words maybe, but not in deeds. The British economy is in its worst shape in many decades, and all shades of opinion agree. The new prime minister trust, she agrees. The Labour Party for sure agrees. Virtually all points of view agree of the dire conditions of the British economy with no future improvement guaranteed or even likely at this point. What a time to stop all of the activity to deal with your real problems in order to engage in the fantasy of the departed queen and the newly arrived son. What, a, again, a bizarre display of missing even a basic understanding of what the urgent priorities ought to be and how different they are from the theater that you're going through. And on the other hand, it's a caution to all of us. Many of us, myself included, look upon Mr. Trump as a theater of distraction, as the United States is in deeper and deeper economic difficulty. And so maybe we shouldn't be surprised. We had our strange Mr. Trump. They had their strange Boris Johnson. Now their strange, even more right-wing new prime minister and another fantasy chapter in the history of the British monarchy. Fantasy is often an escape when reality looks really difficult, but it never solves the problem. I think that's where the British are right now. We're going to have to leave it right there. We were joined by Professor Richard Wolf. He's the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books. The latest is The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check that out and all of his work at rdwolf.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program. We bring you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to the show. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.